Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is part of the fight against corruption, but also always makes a backup MP3 file as well, you know, just in case. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and isn't it funny how many times over the past few years people have said MPs should have resigned if they'd had any standards? And yet now one has, you know, what if country file fucked crime watch Owen Patterson, and it's entirely because he didn't have any. It's not often the general British public get things right. I mean, they seem to think every other person in the country is a refugee who's simultaneously taking their jobs while also somehow on benefits. They're also certain the monarchy serve a purpose other than to highlight awareness of sex offenders, and they think that Ed Sheeran is a musician. But in amongst all those thought turds, though, there are nuggets of tinned sweetcorn that show sometimes you can't beat the sheer natural instinct of Joe or Joe Weenisafine public. Take any number of polls over the last many, many years on what the least trusted professions in the UK are. And there, standing proudly on top of a podium made up of neglected areas of society and wearing a cape of brown envelopes, are politicians. Actually, that is an unfair comment because brown envelopes are so 20 years ago and now is far more accepted by politicians, particularly conservative ones, that breaching standards and codes of conduct is the job. And if anything, this whole representing the public really gets in the way of the cronyism and corruption they set their hearts on and became a politician for. As Owen Patterson resigned from one of his many jobs last week as an MP for North Shropshire, he announced that he will remain a public servant, but outside the cruel world of politics. Yeah, that cruel, mean, awful, bullying world of politics that says, hey, maybe you could just do the job you were elected for instead of breaching all rules and lobbying for two different companies who are paying you about half a million quid a year. Ugh, bastard politics. Why so harsh? It's one of those things, though, isn't it, where, you know, everyone does that sort of lobbying thing, so you don't really realise it's not okay. It's like singing happy birthday in a restaurant without paying copyright duty to Warner, or having a sip of your parents' alcohol before you're 18, or influencing government policies in return for cash. When all your peers are doing it, it's hard to understand it's wrong. No wonder last week Patterson was insisting it was the investigation into his egregious case that was wrong and bad and unfair, and not him doing all the wrong and bad and unfair things. 
In fact, many of Patterson's Conservative colleagues agreed, including AMPs all currently under investigation into their conduct, and they voted in the Commons to change the standard system. The Leadsom Amendment, as proposed by daytime TV host in the Upside Down, Andrea Leadsom, was to set up a new standards committee, you know, one that perhaps wouldn't monitor standards, and was led by a panel that didn't have any themselves, so they'd be more suited in understanding about the lack of any in the Commons too. The vote would mean a suspension of Owen Patterson's suspension, and likely him getting away with everything scot-free when it turned out that the new standards committee would probably be thick pudding Marc Francois with a traffic cone on his head shouting eh, eh, game show noises when he didn't understand things and letting everything else go through. This is about justice for MPs, said Andrea Leadsom, something she knows as her CV says she's been a High Court judge, a judicial officer for Mega City One and a Greek goddess of justice, which she wrote on there in crayon herself underneath astronaut and mother. The government won the vote by 250 to 232 because, as we know, they are tough on crime, but much tougher on people who try to stop them doing crime. But 109 Tory MPs abstained on the vote because they didn't agree with it. This is, as you might know, the best form of action, as the famous Nike slogan says, just don't do anything. There is nothing like sitting back and letting a policy pass to show everyone just how hard you are fighting to stop it. And this sort of mentality is echoed around much of what the government do. They're so concerned about the situation in Afghanistan, for example, that they're leaving it well alone. Or as we've seen at the COP26 this week, the Prime Minister and reason you can buy extra tall stair gates, Boris Johnson, is so concerned about climate change that he fell asleep through the conference while simultaneously not wearing a mask and sitting next to National Treasure David Attenborough so that he could fight climate change properly too by being dead. Such bravery all round. So it makes sense that such an abstention, the language of protest they understand, especially in the face of a three-line whip, could rattle the government into a U-turn on the vote the very next day. Well, it might have been that. It might also have been all the newspaper front pages of even right-wing papers criticising the vote and general outrage online, which is a relief to know the government can't just do what they like and they still fear popular opinion. It's just also a shame that popular opinion is that refugees should drown at sea and Ed Sheeran is a musician. Of course, the government defended the vote first, sending out Minecraft character and business secretary Quasi Kwarteng to do all the interviews, suggesting that maybe it's the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner who should quit, actually. And he had a point, because I can't imagine what it's like for Catherine Stone to work in a job where she's got absolutely nothing to do. It would be far more rewarding for her to leave and then get a job somewhere with standards, like an underground fight club or a drugs cartel. But just as Kwarteng promised no support for failing energy companies just weeks ago, there was no support for him supplying a party line that had run out of fuel ages ago, and he was thrown under a proverbial bus within hours as the government changed their mind on supporting Patterson. The government didn't actually let Owen Patterson know about this either. He instead found out about the U-turn when the journalist called him as he was in the supermarket, but I guess it had become impossible to tell if his absence from the Commons meant he was at work or not. Patterson announced his resignation from being an MP later that day because it seems politics just isn't fair to people who don't like being fair. I can only hope he finds a job where he'll feel more at home, like rigging sports matches or being paid by the government to develop an app that doesn't work. Star of the Funny Bones books and leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, told MPs that he feared the vote for the Leadsom Amendment conflated the individual case with the general concern, which, as we know, means that they suddenly became very aware that by highlighting Patterson's misdemeanours, it had put a big flashing LED sign over all of them saying, Roggins here. Since Patterson's resignation, allegations of sleaze, or as it's called everywhere else in the world, corruption, have been pouring out of the Commons like an open sewage valve into the British coastline. Several unnamed MPs told unnamed journalists that levelling up funding for their constituencies was threatened if they hadn't backed Patterson in the vote, which makes you wonder if the real levelling up is Johnson going from Prime Minister to Crime Boss. 
These same MPs said ministers are in tow to Johnson and won't stand up to him because they all want to please Daddy. A very grim image, but I suppose there is also every chance that he's the real dad of several of the younger ones. Should MPs have second jobs, especially when they often can't do their first job very well? International Trade Secretary, and we couldn't find the parrots so you'll have to do, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, said in an interview that ministers having another job adds a richness to their role in Parliament. Yes, I suppose that is one very blunt way of putting it. She also did say there should be a ban on lobbying, which there is, so I reckon it'd be an idea to check her accounts fairly sharpish. In amongst concerns about MPs breaching rules by lobbying, it also seems the government have been giving away a peerage to anyone who hands them £3 million. I'm not really sure why you'd want to spend that much money on one when I could have my decisions overturned within hours and fall asleep in a chair at home for an awful lot less. According to a report by the Sunday Times and Open Democracy, all but one of the 16 of the most recent Conservative Party treasurers have ended up in the Lords, as have 22 of the party's biggest donors. But Environment Secretary, an example of how people would look if there was no gravity, George Eustace, says it's just a coincidence. Yes, I suppose these things do happen, right? In the same way if I open 20 bags of crisps and there's crisps inside all of them, it's a coincidence. Or how it's a coincidence that George Foreman Grills happened to be a company owned by George Foreman. Feels a lot like George Eustace got the definition of coincidence from wherever Alanis Morissette got her definition of irony. Another coincidence is how all of this is presided over by a Prime Minister who lied to the Queen, was up for breaking international law, got his own standards chief to quit, broke lockdown rules and has had four investigations into his conduct by the Parliamentary Standards Commission. What are the chances, eh? Where's the Unsolved Mysteries crew? Because this, this is just too much. It's also a coincidence that Boris Johnson's stay in Marbella last month in a villa owned by anemic Gumby, Zach Goldsmith, was completely free and that Zach Goldsmith just happens to be given a peerage and a job by Johnson. The Prime Minister refuses to specify how much that trip that he took just as the UK was plunging into an energy crisis cost, but there is every chance that he also has no clue as he forgot to look at any of the price tags while marvelling at just what a coincidence it is that he was at the goldsmith's home when he just randomly planned to fly on holiday and walk into anyone's villa and stay there. It must be somewhat galling for Goldsmith that those are the lengths he's had to get to to get a peerage, when knowing full well Johnson doesn't need that level of comfort to relax. He just requires several people explaining in detail how doomed the planet is alongside the possibility of giving Covid to someone who's actually respected. Labour leader and sad paintbrush Keir Starmer said that the Prime Minister has given the green light to corruption, which is a very smart choice of words during COP26, as it shows Johnson is actually very capable of being green when he wants to. Labour are calling for investigations into pretty much, well, everything, saying Rees-Mogg's position is untenable, which I'm not sure is true, as actually always looked very comfortable lying in the Commons. Uh, They said there must be a probe into Kwasi Kwarteng's comments about the Standards Commissioner and an investigation into Johnson's holiday too. But is it investigations that are needed when it feels very much right there in front of us that all of this is clearly corruption? Perhaps a trip to Specsavers would be more appropriate, but my concern is that Starmer would refuse to do the eye test until he'd heard what a focus group said what each letter was first. It's not easy for Labour to act as a moral pariah in the same week as former Labour MP and always no face from Spirited Away, Claudia Webb, was found guilty of harassment and given a suspended jail sentence. Though, to be fair, Labour are now calling for her to resign as an MP, whereas if she'd been in the Conservative Party, they'd probably have voted to change the definition of harassment so it didn't include what she'd done and then promote her to Minister of Kindness or something. The party also admitted this week that there had been a data breach of its members and supporters' information after a cyber attack on the third party that handles their data. But luckily, that should now only affect the three people that have actually stayed. Actually, though, lots of people who used to be members were also emailed about the breach, meaning Labour have kept their data even after leaving. Still, I suppose it's quite useful for them to have a bunch of contacts they can ask what the leadership campaign pledges were that Keir Starmer said he'd carry out but seems to have completely forgotten. 
The public are very aware that politics and sleaze go together, like the Prime Minister and horrifically inappropriately timed holidays. Whether or not anything would change actually remains to be seen, or probably like in years past, MPs will just change the definition of corruption to mean absolutely everything except what they're doing, and Patterson will be used as a scapegoat for getting rid of all the corruption all at once until he coughs up £3 million for a peerage. By the time you hear this podcast, there'll have been a three-hour emergency debate on parliamentary standards in the Commons, which was started by Minister Stephen Barclay apologising for the vote last week. A very smart choice by the government, as he was clearly chosen on account of him being so forgettable that no one will remember that they actually said sorry for something. Why was Stephen Bartley leading it? Well, Boris Johnson couldn't, as he had a pre-arranged visit to a hospital in the North East. What a coincidence, eh? In other news, as COP26 enters its second and final week, Boris Johnson has urged delegates to drive for the line, showing yet again how clueless he is as getting the train to the line would be heaps better for the planet. Over 100,000 protesters marched in Glasgow for action on climate change, but were criticised by some media outlets for not providing enough detail about what they wanted. Yeah, because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but it's entirely up to protesters and the public to fix things, and not to all any of the companies or billionaires or governments that are causing it. But hey, I suppose by not providing enough detail, actually all those protesters were just as clued up as everyone inside the COP26 on exactly how to stop everything going on fire. Week one of the conference saw some promising agreements on deforestation by countries such as Brazil, who were previously insistent on getting rid of all of the Amazon except a very small strip in the middle. US President and cartoon tortoise Joe Biden said methane reduction has been game-changing, because I guess at his age that can be a big problem. More than 40 countries have agreed to stop using coal too, but Australia didn't sign that, and their resources minister, the appropriately named Keith Pitt, who also looks like he's been recently dug up, said they expect to be selling coal decades into the future, which is not only careless, but also ignores that if they keep doing it, it's going to be a lot harder for them to dive for coal than it currently is to mine it. Despotic morph suit Jeff Bezos gave a speech where he said his flight to space made him realise how finite and fragile the world is, which probably means he'll try to put it in an overly large cardboard box with a tonne of brown paper. Bezos pledged $2 billion for land restoration in Africa, but his country Amazon generate millions of tonnes of plastic waste around the world and its carbon emissions have increased in past years and not just from his penis rocket flying to space. Someone really needs to suggest to Bezos, based on previous purchases, that maybe he'd like to do something actually fucking useful. The government's own figures show that Brexit losses are 178 times bigger than all the trade deals Johnson's government have gained, but at the same time, fair play, they've shown everyone who mocked Johnson saying it was do or die by managing to both do and die at the same time. Keir Starmer said that Labour would make Brexit work. Not sure how they'd do that unless they can train it to be an HGV driver. And lastly, that Trixie Covid is still about, and Deputy Chief Medical Officer and Giant Baby Jonathan Van Tam has warned that there are hard months to come in the UK, which is a relief as I was quite worried, but now it just sounds like he's describing every single winter. Health Secretary, and when he wears a face mask he legit looks like an egg in an egg cup, Sajid Javid, says that everyone must get booster jabs to enjoy Christmas, so I can't wait to see the look on his kids' faces as they unwrap a batch of syringes from under the tree instead of a new bike. Hey, 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 Parpol Broads. Um, I've got some big news. Big news for the podcast this week. Um, so it's a little bit hypocritical. I know I always say my one rule on the show is to not have party politicians on it. And I try not to have any particular bias towards one or the other because I equally despair at everyone. But following just how corrupt the government are being, I am now breaking this rule, my very goddamn self, as I have been made, yes, big announcement, Minister for Cheery Pessimism in the Monster Raving Looney Party. Um, I'm very excited. And that does now mean I will show unquestionable bias towards my very favourite party 
party from now on. The Monster Raving Loonies, they are my favourite party. Um, I mean, they have been for years. The reason I first got into politics um, was the Monster Raving Loonies party. When I was six, they had a pledge um, that as well as a hot and cold water tap in every home, they'd also have a custard and jelly one. Boy, oh boy, did I wish I could vote that year. And I still very much hope that comes true one day. Didn't even have to pay £3 million for my peerage or in fact anything at all. But I am now Lord Duyeb, according to the Loonies, and I will happily take on that definitely, definitely official mantle. Um, I can now put that on things, can't I? I don't really know what things. I don't have a business card and I rarely write letters, but I might start doing both those things just so I can add my new title to it. Let me know if you'd like a letter and uh, which one of the 26 from the alphabet you'd prefer, and I will send it over with a little Lord Duyeb signature. Um, exciting news aside, though, that was quite a fun week of, uh, of politics, wasn't it? I did enjoy watching um, all of that stuff not be good for some terrible people for once, and I weirdly found hope in the government having to U-turn from an awful decision because no one liked it. If only they could also all not like all the other awful shit they do, and then maybe it might work out. You know, maybe... I uh, hope. Um, I had a moment of realising my own total moral failure this weekend. No, not becoming a politician and then speaking on this podcast, which is obviously uh, a moral failure, but an actual one. Um, I I don't know if you went on the climate march. I hope you did, uh, especially if you're up in Glasgow. It looked immense and, and absolute kudos to everyone that went. I wanted to go on the sort of um, affiliate march in London, but I was knackered because I'd been shouting at children all week at um, workshops we were doing in a Lego installation, which sounds incredibly fun. And I managed to not step on a single piece, so double win the whole way. Um, anyway, so I wanted to go on the climate march, and I didn't. And instead, I took my daughter to her first fireworks display, where people lit a big bonfire. Yeah, it feels very much like I made the wrong choices, doesn't it? But I suppose I justified it in my feeble head by thinking that if those 12 companies that didn't cause 70% of all the pollution in the world, you know, if they just fucking didn't do that, and Jeff Bezos didn't go to space like a prick, amongst many other things, um, then we could enjoy a bonfire probably every night of the year. Probably, I'd probably set everything on fire constantly, and it wouldn't be as bad. Um, because I like bonfires. I, li- I like them. Do you know, I wasn't that bothered, but now I'm very much someone who likes fireworks again because my daughter is of an age where where she finds them exciting and I'll no doubt return to thinking that they're all largely the same as soon as she loses interest again I do wish they make some different ones though like it's always oh a circle oh a line oh a circle oh a line again boring you know I'd quite like one that spells out messages of hope or better yet looks like Jeff Bezos's penis ship going into space but then it suddenly explodes you know something to really cheer us up right um anyway not much else to say this week. Must get on with the show because there's loads in it. But just to let you know that if you like the music on this here podcast, then you will probably know that it's all beats that I steal from my brother, uh, producer and rapper The Last Skeptic. Uh, well, he has a new album out that everyone, including even me, uh, is liking very, very much. It's, it's properly good. It's seriously very good. Um, it's called You Don't Like Me But I'm Still Here and you should get that from whichever places you get music from. So go and do that right now. Right, on this week's show, I am speaking to James Murray from Business Green about COP26 and if there's any hope for the world whatsoever. Um, I spoke to him before I went to see a big pile of wood get set on fire and I'm pleased that it was that way round or I'd have felt too guilty to ask him any questions. Uh, And in the middle, a little sleaze if you please, a little sleaze if you don't please. One of the real bonuses of the pandemic was that for a short while, being terrified of a virus and barely going outside really made me forget my eco-anxiety. There's not a day that goes by where I don't check the weather and immediately assume it's a precursor to us thinking, oh, that's why we've never found Atlantis, as we're submerged by a sharknado, which is definitely something that might happen. 
To me, if I was in charge of everything, or indeed anything, I'd just ban all polluting industries overnight, have everyone's overly large diesel 4x4s compact in turned into shelters for wildlife, renewable energy developments put in place, and Greg Wallace would be imprisoned in a cell miles underground, never to be seen again. That last one, I should say, has nothing to do with climate change. I just think it would make the planet a much happier place. I simply cannot fathom why anyone would risk the fate of the world we live in in order to just get more cash, when ultimately you can't fight a Sharknado by throwing 50s at it, can you? I often imagine a billionaire like Bezos staring out at a fire-covered, withered landscape and feeling so alone that he tries desperately to buy the friendship of a giant cockroach before it just eats his legs off, and he thinks, ah, maybe these notes aren't so useful after all. So, knowing that COP26 was going ahead this year, it didn't really fill me with hope that the same businesses and global leaders who'd been happily digging up fossils to burn would now suddenly have an about turn and go green. But it is businesses and global leaders that started it, which means that depressingly, and in many ways as it should be, they also play a part in ending it. And many policies that have emerged from the past week of the COP26 conference have actually been promising. More than 100 world leaders have promised to end deforestation, though already some of them are complaining that the pledge means they won't be able to build the things they wanted to, and actually maybe they're not bothered about breathing properly. There were pledges to reduce methane emissions, no, you're sniggering, sustainable food development, 40 countries signed to reduce coal, even though sadly not the biggest coal users, and money has been pledged to help developing nations achieve goals some of the rich countries giving money haven't actually signed up to themselves. But will the leaders go through with these pledges, and how much hope is there that any of them are really thinking about how time is running out, when the conference queuing system means it is taking attendees over four hours to get in. Is COP26 a beacon of hope, or do I need to keep doing my sad eyes when I see people under 30 and planning different dust recipes? Well, this week I spoke to James Murray, editor of Business Green, the UK's leading website for green business news and analysis. James is superb at making green policies in the world of suits understandable, and as you'll hear this, he'll likely be at COP26 live tweeting the progress of just what's happening and what it means. I spoke to him just before he headed to Glasgow during week one of the conference, and he kindly took time out of what is a very, very busy few weeks for him in order to explain to me just why this conference is important and even possibly hopeful too. Here's James. James, thank you for having time to chat to me in, in what is uh, clearly a, a crazily busy week for you uh, with COP26. And I should let the listeners know we're talking on the Wednesday of the first week. Uh, so things may have happened uh, between the time we chat and when this goes out. Um, but so far, I mean, it it seems like a lot of progress uh, is happening from my sort of uneducated in climate uh you know, policies mind. Um, but, you know, we've got the deforestation pledge. We've got the, the methane reduction, which I've promised not to laugh about every time I say it. And uh, South Africa's deal on coal. Are, are you feeling optimistic uh, that, that uh, COP26 is going to lead to much needed changes? How are you feeling about it so far? Um I am. I'm feeling broadly optimistic. However, there's a sort of disclaimer that goes with that. Whenever you talk to anyone environmentalist or anyone who sort of reports on the climate space, uh, that these things are all very, very relative, and it's this constant sort of back and forth between, you know, we are making progress, um, and actually, there's probably been better progress than many people expected. Uh, there's probably been better progress that's been reported, um, and and there, particularly in the first few days of COP, there, there's a real sense of momentum. There, I think John Kerry said that he's been going to these events since the early 90s and he's never felt such sort of positive um, momentum, positive excitement, that the sheer number of key big decision makers in the room from both the corporate world and the politics world. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there is that progress, but obviously that disclaimer is there that it's all far too late. Um, we're still not on track to limit emissions and temperature increases at the level that's required and a lot of the progress is based on pledges and forward-looking commitments 
uh, and then you get into the question of do you believe them you know or how credible are they can they can you actually deliver on them um, and of course if you don't deliver on them then the climate crisis gets worse still so um yeah, i think i think cautious optimism is is always the best way to look at it in in these circumstances with that caveat that you know it's still a very bleak outlook um and greta thunberg's concerns about you know these commitments and these these talks not leading to action are are in, are valid in many ways I mean, it is one of those things where I sort of realise this is this is COP twenty six. There have been twenty five of these beforehand, and it it does feel now that it's just getting closer and closer to real panic stations, and so they're going, oh, we should probably we should probably do something. It's um, and it, I mean, what what would be what's the kind of outcome that we need to you know in in um let, let's say worst case scenario, what's the outcome that we need for things to not be terrifying? You know, what what's the what's the thing that you're hoping will will get out of these two weeks? That the one policy that can Make yeah, I mean, the, agreed slightly easier. The thing about them is, and this is where some of the sort of political reporting of of, of COP has been slightly awry, is is they're not like other summits. They're not they're not like a sort of G seven or a G twenty where everyone comes together with kind of an outcome that's already agreed, um, and and you know everyone knows what they want to achieve going in and broadly gets a consensus at the end, and everyone goes away either happy or uh, annoyed with the French, um, which which tends to be what happens. Um, the 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 kind of in in this instance it is a real negotiation between nearly 200 countries so it's hard to sort of pick out one specific thing um that could come out of it and also there's kind of there's two sort of streams if you like within within a cop there is the technical negotiations trying to agree a kind of legalistic text uh, and then there is the the kind of everything else that goes along around the fringes the, the, the and the various political commitments and, and initiatives that are announced and the corporate pledges that are made etc uh, etc et so on on each of those fronts um there's sort of a bar for what you'd call a success so on on the technical side of things what's currently going on is uh, negotiators are arguing away over a, a deeply complex negotiating text with lots of square brackets that denote areas where they're still in disagreement uh, and they're trying to thrash out a kind of as i say a legalistic agreement to finalize the rule book of the paris agreement um and that you know that will be a sort of pass or fail they they will either come away with an agreement that finalises that rule book, um, and that largely relates to quite arcane issues about carbon markets and trading carbon offsets, and the way countries account for their emissions uh, through the UN regime uh, and report on those emissions through the UN regime. So there'll be a pass or fail there. Um, but then the broader sense is, you know, what you'd like to see from the COP is kind of these market signals that tell uh, investors, tell businesses, tell the public. Um, and tell those governments that are less committed to this agenda than others that progress is accelerating, um, that we are going to see, you know, a big global industrial revolution where we, you know, end the internal combustion engine within 15 years, where we stop burning coal uh, within 10 to 15 years, where, you know, we massively increase investment in renewables and we transition away from fossil fuels over the course of only two or three decades. Um, so. And, and that, you know, whether that's a success or failure is very much in the eye of the beholder. So no matter what happens, some environmentalists will come out and go, this is terrible. It's not good enough. Um, some climate skeptics will come out and go, this is terrible. It's a complete waste of time. No one's actually going to do it. Um, what a nonsense. And if they do do it, there'll be a disaster. 
Um, and in the middle ground, there will be a big debate as to whether or not the su signals are sufficiently ambitious, whether the various national pledges are sufficiently ambitious, and whether that will actually, you know, catalyse this industrial revolution that we need to see. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's complex. And as I say, the first few days have been broadly encouraging on both those fronts. Which is, yeah, good to know. I mean, it, it, I, I am someone who's just, I'm very terrified by climate change, just generally and, and regularly sort of feel quite useless about it. I mean, you know, in my head, why, you know, this event should just be everyone going, right, let's stop everything. We need to just save the planet because we live on it. But what are the what are the hurdles in, in stopping, you know, these progressive global agreements kind of going ahead? Um, you know, you talked about the negotiations there. I know that a big issue is sort of developing countries not having money to tackle uh you know emissions is is yeah. that one of the biggest problems or is it simply that like you said you know countries aren't going ahead with the pledges that they promised it's i mean it's so complicated we could literally you could literally <laughs> talk about this for hours and there's a reason why it's been going for 26 years and a reason why the negotiations when they do happen uh in the second week in particular go round the clock for like four or five days literally like you know oh, you end God. up with people who are up for 48 hours walking around like zombies trying to get a coffee in a conference center that's like at three in the morning that's basically empty except these poor diplomats and ministers um still arguing over as i say a, a, the wording the precise wording of of these these legal texts because the complexities are absolutely massive you know it's geopolitics in the raw um added with this huge moral dimension of, of, of injustice, that this is essentially an issue of justice, all then combined with kind of really complex economics and technical challenges. I mean, it's, it's you know, it is the story of everything. Um, and that's one of the reasons I find it so exciting and so frustrating that um, more kind of political journalism doesn't engage fully with what's going on. Um, but to try and answer your question, um, why are we not seeing more progress? I mean, we have seen progress. The Paris Agreement was arguably the most successful international agreement in decades, almost since the war. The, the fact that they managed to get these countries to agree to take these actions, um, and those actions are still inadequate, but we have seen a shift in thinking and a shift in progress. But the difficulties are, um, to unpick it, I mean, firstly, the scale of the challenge. You, you kind of got, we are talking about the biggest, fastest industrial revolution in the history of human civilization, uh, the full decarbonisation of our economies before people under 40 have retired you know it's it's that epic so it's difficult that there's that sort of starting point the second point is you've got this issue of what in the un jargon is called common but differentiated responsibility and that recognizes that every country has a responsibility to tackle climate change but that responsibility is differentiated based on you know how much historically you've caused the problem and how rich you are so you have this issue where the, the poorer nations quite rightly go, you developed using fossil fuels, you developed by clearing your forests. What, how can you morally deny us the right to follow the same path? Um, which is very compelling, to which the richer nations and others have to go, well, if you follow the same path, we're all screwed. And it's actually in your interest not to follow that path. We have to show you a more sustainable development path to which the poorer nations then rightly go, well, how do we pay for that? You need to stump up the cash to help us do that. It effectively becomes an argument about reparations, which, as we've seen in other contexts, 
is never an easy conversation to have and is hugely controversial. So, so, so you kind of the agreement does have a, have at its core this commitment that richer nations will help fund these transition in poorer nations, um, which they have done to a large degree, but they have consistently missed the targets that they set of of a hundred billion dollars a year, and that undermines the trust between these two blocks of nations and therefore you then get into these technical arguments because there is a breakdown of trust there um and then to complicate matters of course you know the world isn't just neatly divided into rich and poor you've got these petro states um which are often now very rich but still technically classified as developing nations even though they're amongst the richest per capita nations in the world they have a short-term vested interest in not letting the world decarbonize as fast and often act as blockers in this process um, and you've got the large emerging economies like India and China and, and Brazil, which are, you know, hugely powerful, very, very high emitters um, and, and and increasingly wealthy. But, you know, they have an immense sort of challenge to kind of wean their economies off coal. Um, they're broadly committed to doing so. But again, it's it's more of a challenge for them than industrialized nations. Um, and of course, the industrialized nations aren't doing what they say they should fast enough either. So, um you know the the whole thing is immensely complicated and 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 of course you throw in you know historical ill feeling and tensions you know you always at these events get accusations of colonialism and neo-colonialism thrown around um of exploitation of countries not living up to their historical responsibilities um often these accusations justified um you know but then sometimes they're just used as blocking tactics to further the interests of fossil fuel reliant states um, so it's, it, as, as I said, it's a highly charged negotiation and debate, typically, um, as I say, which often carry, is carried out by people who have been up for 48 hours. <laughs> that sounds nightmarish. I mean, yeah. it does. when you sort of boil it down to you've got to get the world to sort of agree on things, as, as when we've got a country that can barely agree on anything, you know, it does seem like quite the, quite the task. Um, I mean, you know, I'm very aware, as, as you sort of mentioned sometimes, it's, it's very complicated. And there's a lot of uh, elements to it. One of the I know that COP26 isn't about a net zero agreement because it's about um, sort of, I suppose, in, in doing what they can with net zero isn't, isn't the overall target. Um, but is is that what countries should be aiming? Is that what they need to aim for now? Or does that kind of ignore lots of the other issues? You know, there was the big uh, decision yeah. on deforestation, which sounds very sensible. There's a big biodiversity crisis. Is net zero... Uh, what what needs to happen or is there a, like you said i mean i'm sure this is a very long it's, answer but is, no, no. are there many other things they need to be taking into consideration there are many other things but net zero is kind of the north star of the whole process and it's a fascinating story actually so basically what what happened was in 2009 there was the copenhagen summit and it completely fell apart um and and it kind of you know it it made some progress it wasn't quite the disaster that was reported but it didn't deliver as promised and part of the reason for that is they tried to get this international agreement that was essentially a legally binding treaty that every country would have to decarbonize um and for the reasons we we're just discussing the, the large emerging economies were just never going to sign off on that they were never going to have their hands bound to say we can't develop in this way we need more flexibility we're worried about climate change but we need more flexibility than this was allowing and the whole thing kind of fell apart so when the Paris Agreement was signed, um, it, it had a different approach. And it said that countries would come forward with their own nationally determined contributions or NDCs in the UN jargon, which is essentially a national climate action plan. Um, 
and the expectation with countries would would set out how they plan to tackle climate change and and it you know they are kind of unenforceable they are voluntary you know countries come forward with this pledge and if they don't achieve them nothing really happens at this stage i mean there's a long debate about whether more stronger enforcement mechanisms through trade deals and the like can come in but at the moment you know they're entirely within a, a national government's gift to produce these things and they're they're wonderful documents because they go from kind of like these 500 page plans like the uk government's just produced to literally some countries just put in about three lines just go you know <laughs> oh we promise to do a bit better we'll, we'll invest in some forests um and and that's it um, and, and there's this wonderful breadth, and of course, but but what that did is that provided that framework and that expectation that countries would come forward with these plans, and then what then within that the overarching Paris Agreement set these goals to say we would keep temperature increases well below two degrees. That's the precise phrasing. It's not just below two degrees, and we'll aim to achieve less than one point five degrees of warming. Um, and it also committed to ensuring that we balance anthropogenic emissions, i.e. our greenhouse gases. We balance the, the, the amount we emit and the amount we soak up in, and again, I quote, the second half of the century. Um, and all these countries signed off on that. And it's, it's a subject of debate as to whether they fully understood the significance of what they were signing off on. Because that second half of the century target for achieving net zero is not compatible with the temperature goals. So over the last five years, what's happened is countries and everyone else has sort of vaguely sort of recognised or have, have started to recognise that if we're going to keep to the temperature goals, we need to get to net zero by 2050-ish, basically. You could argue, so some of the poorer nations have gone a bit later and said we deserve to be at 2060. Uh, most of the industrialized nations have gone for 2050 but are under pressure to pull it forward um and and what what's been fascinating about the process between the paris uh cop in 2015 and of course this one now which is the sort of the next big one there have been others in the interim but this is the one where everyone's coming back to say how they've done since paris is there's been this shift from <clears throat> that being a slightly sort of under the radar concept to now if you want your national plan or your corporate plan to be taken seriously, you need to be aspiring for net zero emissions. Um, and then everything else flows from that. So the commitment to expand forests, that obviously feeds into having better carbon sinks so that we can, you know, have more net in the net zero. Um, you know, the commitments to accelerate the development of clean technologies, that's all about cutting emissions to support these net zero goals. Um and one of the big measures of success of COP26 will be sort of after it's all done and dusted and you've, you've got all these national commitments have been updated, um, including some really big, exciting ones like India saying it's going to get to net zero for the first time. That happened. Nigeria, you know, Africa's most populous nation, they said they were going to get to net zero uh, by 2060. Uh, Vietnam said the same. So you kind of see net zero go from this thing that industrialized nations are doing to, to kind of all countries are doing. Um and we're seeing early analysis of those commitments, and it's starting to suggest that just maybe the temperature projections are tracking downwards. Is that is we're starting to look towards maybe being able to keep temperature increases below two degrees, um, and then of course the pressure will come on to improve them as soon as possible to get down towards one point five degrees. So, um, yeah, net zero is the is the critical topic, um, and it is an area where we are seeing some encouraging progress. 
As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we'll be back with James in a minute, but first... You might be asking, just what did Owen Patterson do wrong though, eh? Isn't he just setting an example to all those workshy lot that there he was doing several jobs at once? Yeah. Well, except actually he wasn't doing the main job he was meant to do, while doing two others that he wasn't really allowed to in the manner that he was. I'm not going to pretend that lobbying rules aren't confusing and not as easy to understand as they should be, but while it's definitely to do with the fact he was giving companies access to the government in a way they shouldn't be, it's also about how Owen Patterson wasn't really saying what he actually was doing. So weirdly, he may have got away with it a bit more if he just openly popped on the register of members' financial interests. Yes, I'm reaping in dust from agrochemicals and clinical diagnostics. Uh, No, just uh, note there, agrochemicals aren't the most ill-tempered ones. Owen Patterson lost his job as Environment Secretary in 2014. You might remember his time in that post was blighted by constant issues with badges, no doubt as it emerged later because he's not really keen on anything being clearly black and white. He then started up a company called UK 2020, and Patterson said it was a conservative think tank, which can't have been true as all those words cancel each other out. It published reports on things like the environment or the NHS, but it was all funded privately and it donated tons of money to Patterson for things like overseas trips. Rather than list it in the Register of Members' Financial Interests, he just said all the funding came from the think tank so it wasn't publicly available who was actually doing it. I may also use this excuse myself when buying things that I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, that PlayStation 5 that's arrived was just uh, funded by the think tank. No, I haven't used our joint credit card inappropriately. Stop asking questions. So unfair. Through an investigation, the Guardian paper found two of the donors to UK 2020, a trade association representing agrochemical manufacturers and a clinical diagnostics company, Randox Laboratories, which paid for Patterson's think tank to publish a report in 2016 that said why the NHS was not as good as health services in other countries that use insurance systems. 
Randox also hired Patterson as a consultant from 2015, paying him £100,000 a year, and then he then lobbied for them loads and got them meetings with Kindness Abyss Pretty Patel, who was International Secretary at the time. So actually, I say he worked for them, but if I paid someone £100,000 and then it meant I had to meet Pretty Patel, I'd want an instant refund, as I could get basically the same experience staring at racist graffiti on a toilet wall for completely free. Patterson also helped them lobby the Food Standards Agency to use Randox's technology to scan for antibiotic residues in milk because they tested UK milk and said it was full of the stuff apparently, but they also couldn't say where the milk they tested was from and the Food Standards Agency didn't recognise Randox's testing methods, so none of that went through. But I do have some sympathy as it's a bit like when I do loads and loads of bits in this show that give evidence about things like I've just said. And if you were to then ask where do I get that evidence from and how do I find it, I'd probably say err a lot and then run away. In 2016, Patterson also started working for Lynn's Country Foods, a northern Irish company like Randox, which sells Finna Brogue's Naked Bacon, a supposedly healthy alternative to bacon, so I'm guessing it probably doesn't contain any actual bacon. Patterson helped them lobby the Food Standards Agency so they wouldn't have to put it on the label that actually their healthy alternative to bacon did contain an additive. And no, not just whatever causes the smell of bacon, because you know that is an additive. But it didn't work, and again, you have to wonder if Lynn's Country Foods has started to regret their hiring process. During the pandemic, Randox were awarded a £133 million contract to deliver COVID testing, which they then failed on due to the lack of equipment to deliver it, and 750,000 test kits they made were considered unsafe and left a lot of care homes without testing, which I don't I don't know if you know this story, but it didn't I mean it wasn't great. It didn't it didn't go well. Then they were punished for this failure by being given another £347 million contract. Yeah, that'll show them. Or maybe it was further apology for them having to meet Pretty Patel, in which case I suppose fair, there's not like you'd be paying that off for quite a while. And just just before they signed that contract, while being advised by Patterson, they relocated to the Isle of Man, which has a 0% corporate tax rate, because, you know, there's only one man there and corporations isn't people. This contract was handed to Randox by useless gerbil person Dido Harding, who, much like Patterson's late wife, sat on the board for the Jockey Club, a club that had many infrastructure investments in Newmarket, the constituency of former health secretary and what if one of the guards in Squid Game just had a stupid face drawn on their mask, Matt Hancock. The Jockey Club's biggest annual event also happens to be the, wait for it, it's, I mean, the world is so full of coincidences right now, the Randox Health Grand National. Randox say Patterson had nothing to do with those contracts being awarded, maybe because he didn't have to by that point. And Owen Patterson insists he's innocent of any wrongdoing, the investigation into him is unfair, and he only worked for those companies in the interest of public health and safety. Which is funny, because really the only time he's done anything for those areas was when he stepped down as an MP and as a consultant for those companies, meaning there's a much greater chance of the public actually getting tests that work next time and bacon that isn't weird. Of course, Owen Patterson resigned before he could be suspended or face a by-election because, as he's learned from colleagues before him, it's much better just to fuck off and let everyone else clear up your mess before blaming it on someone else and hoping everyone forgets. A by-election in North Shropshire is now going to be scheduled, but last time Patterson won it with a 22,000 majority, so even with the whole sleaze thing, it's very unlikely to change from being a Conservative constituency because voters love the possibility of someone who won't remotely work for them as they're too busy doing several other jobs. And as for Parliament's anti-sleaze system, well, it's pretty unclear what will happen to that just yet, but I suppose there's still a chance a new Standards Commissioner will be brought in, and hey, funnily enough, you know who knows all about standards and is currently looking for a job right now. And now... Back to James. Yeah, because I read, I read your, your piece about sort of defending Net Zero, and I think one of the things I hadn't understood in general is is the idea of sort of cancelling out carbon emissions. So it's not that the carbon emissions aren't happening, but it's that other things are in place that sort of cancel them out. And I think um, there was a, a dispatches on Channel 4 on, on Monday uh, that I found very informative, but, you know, about things like the biomass fuel mm. and how actually that does 
give off quite a lot of carbon emissions but over nine or ten years the trees may capture it that they you know it just it felt uh, a little bit disingenuous yeah um but you're 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 you sort of saying that net, or, or in your piece you're saying that net zero is still a very good target to be aiming at despite the way in which that we calculate yeah yeah i mean it is it it is um it is complicated i mean i think that piece um, yeah, thanks for reading it because I think it came to six thousand words in the end trying to unpick this stuff. It's, <laughs> it's, it is a long, long read. Um, the point is, yes, those concerns about these net zero targets are completely valid, and Greta Thunberg and others have been really critical of them and say, look, they're just a bit of a con. It's a way for businesses to keep polluting and say, don't worry, we'll soak up the emissions later through forests or even technical solutions that soak the emissions out of the sky. Um, and that's a really valid concern. And there's definitely some businesses and some countries that are doing that, that have come out and said, you know, we're going to be net zero and then basically done bugger all except plant a few trees. Um, and it's re- and that's really concerning. And it's concerning for the companies and governments that are serious about net zero because it undermines the whole concept and makes people think it's all rubbish. Um, and one of the encouraging things that has happened already at COP, as I said, we'll see how the whole talks pan out in the second week. But... The UN has come out and said they want to produce a new working group that will develop a standard that says, you know, let's not just use those two words. What does net zero look like when it's best practice, when it's good? Um, and just ahead of COP26, this this coalition of NGOs and various independent groups, they also launched a new standard that said, if you as a business want to say you're net zero, you're going to have to develop a plan that says we're actually going to cut our emissions by at least 90%. And in some industries, 95%. And we're going to make sure that that bit that we're soaking up, whether it's through trees or other areas, is just genuinely just the tiny bit that's left that we really can't get rid of. Um, Because there are emissions that are going to happen that are going to be very difficult to get rid of. So as long as we're eating meat, there's going to be uh, potential emissions from livestock um, and the like. Uh, and, And, you know, as long as we're, you know, burning any sort of fossil fuels in any form whatsoever um, which is still needed in some industrial processes you're still again you're still going to have emissions so um, the the kind of key the key question there is 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 can you make them credible and and everyone everyone who sort of supports net zero knows there's that concern there and they are looking at how to do that how you actually reduce emissions as much as possible and you just use the offsets for the last tiny tiny bit is uh you mentioned earlier sort of the uk's uh net zero plan um i mean you know i i'm quite uh i'm not i'm not a fan of the uk government anyway <laughs> we made a lot what they do it, it did feel that we're hosting uh cop 26 you know just after sewage is being poured into beaches yeah. and, you know, it's, and, it wasn't the best preview was it no, no, that was it. And then Rishi Sunak's budget with just lowering tax on domestic flights and not freezing, you know, uh, keeping a freeze on fuel duty. It didn't, it really didn't feel like perhaps we were the best hosts for this. Um, how unhelpful have their kind of, in, I suppose, inactions on climate change been? And is is the net, is their net zero plan decent at all? Is there anything that we can be kind of optimistic about in there? Um yeah, again, as with everything, it's complicated. Um, I mean, I, it's it's a real yes and no answer. This it's kind of is the glass half full or half empty. And um, uh, I, <clears throat> so the first thing to say is the plan is you know the UK is doing really well. We are a world leader on this. Our track record of decarbonisation is better than most countries. We have 
built a really impressive offshore wind industry in particular. Uh, we're, we're making, we're not, you know, we're not amongst the, the, the absolute forerunners, but we're making really good progress on electric vehicles, um, on various other clean technologies. Um, we, you know, we are, have become sort of the first industrialized nation to effectively push coal off the grid almost completely. And it will be very often very soon it will be complete um and and the strategy that came out was broadly positive there was lots of good stuff in there it kind of properly wrestled with the problem it set out clear paths for shifting away from gas boilers in our homes um properly phasing out the internal combustion engine um and 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 moving forward um on on multiple fronts there you know there was stuff in there on nuclear on carbon capture and storage you know areas that are a bit controversial in some quarters but you know are could have a role to play in decarbonisation and, and, you know, the government sort of moving forward with all of those. So, you know, it was a broadly positive plan. I mean, the two or three things I'd said, I sort of said about it was, it was essentially kind of like, it was a kind of pro-market centre-right, vaguely populist uh, plan from a pro-market centre-right, vaguely populist <laughs> government. You know, it, it was exactly what you would expect. You know, it was all about setting the standards and the target and saying, go away entrepreneurs and brilliant people and solve this for us and then the power of the market will drive it now that's you know that is part of the solution to climate change that is a valid means of decarbonizing the the worry is is it ambitious enough in those areas where we've traditionally had market failures and where it's not immediately obvious that the market in the space of 10 years is just suddenly gonna solve everything for us um, and, and, you know, and the big one there is energy efficiency. There just wasn't enough funding for improving the energy efficiency of our homes, particularly for fuel, the fuel poor households. Um, and, and they're just not spending enough money in that space. Uh, another big one was there wasn't, there was very little on farming and agriculture. Um, and there was absolutely nothing on behavior change. There was no sense of the government being willing to say to anyone, as they do say for health issues, but there was no sense of them being willing to say, Mr. and Mrs. British public, would you mind possibly even just vaguely considering eating a little bit less meat and, and you know, not flying off on for a weekend trip every two months kind of thing. It was, you know, there was, there was no sense of that kind of behaviour change engagement. So those were the weaknesses, but broadly it was kind of a positive step forward. Um, and then came the budget and that's where it was frustrating because, you know, there was no sense of the government only a week before had announced you know, a defining economic strategy for the next three decades. And then the Chancellor barely mentions it uh, and also does cut air passenger duty, which won't make that much difference to emissions, to be honest. It was a relatively small change, but the symbolism of it is absolutely terrible. It is, you know, it really was just saying, um, I care about climate change so much, I'm going to make domestic flights cheaper, which is just a, a, a nonsense um, uh, decision and one that does undermine did undermine the credibility of of, of, of the wider plan uh, to a degree um so yeah the the hope is that in the one and one of the big worries about, about cop 26 for domestic politics is is the hope is that in the wake of it once the attention and the kind of the media caravan has moved on a bit will the government continue to stay as focused as it needs to be on driving what are big fundamental changes to our economy and our infrastructure um and and changes that really do need to happen you know before the end of this parliament and into the next one
one of the things again that I, I wasn't aware of until very recently is you know about um emissions based on consumption because we've got we, we've cut our own emissions based on our services and goods but we're also doing trade deals with places now around the other side of the world because of brexit is that now going to become a problem for you know our our own kind of emissions and our, our net zero targets in the uk yeah, I mean, again, this is another complicated and controversial area, and always has been this <laughs> sense of consumption. Which is, no, I mean, it's, it's not. It's, I mean, it's, it's it's this beautiful, infuriating topic, climate change, because it is so. It does feed into everything, um, and one of the most exciting things over the last few years is that gradual widening realization of that fact, and it's kind of mainstreaming within politics and business and economics because it does inform and shape everything and trade policy is another one of those areas where it's absolutely critical so there's long been a debate about whether countries when they're looking at their kind of national carbon accounts how much we emit should consider these consumption emissions because it's no doubt true that while the uk is decarbonized faster than many other nations that's because we did deindustrialize a lot of our heavy industry Um, it did go to china and now china is kind of the world's one of the world's biggest climate villains and gets attacked all the time for having such high emissions. But one of the main reasons it has such high emissions is because it's producing all the West stuff um, that, that we then consume. So you've kind of got this complex accounting question, which obviously is sort of interlaced with this complex moral question of who ultimately is responsible. And you get to the core of globalization. It's just like, you know, we're up, you know, we have sort of, you know, China's development has been driven by trade and, um, but, Equally, that's come at a, a very significant environmental cost. Um, now, yeah, where that gets interesting is should the UK consider more about its consumption emissions? I mean, there's a general view that yes, we should, but then equally, we don't control other countries' emissions. If 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 they you know if they want to produce using certain approaches, it's hard for us to dictate what that should be. Um, but then you do get into this issue of okay, well, could trade agreements become a, le- a lever for for driving progress? And and there's a big live debate currently around exactly that so the eu is exploring this idea of um they're called carbon border adjustment tariffs which is i mean doesn't trade policy have the the, the clearest and most concise <laughs> terms but but it goes a little bit like this so basically the eu has a carbon market so there's a carbon price so you know polluters in the eu have to pay x euros per ton and actually that price has been going up recently so it's actually it's relatively high now of course if you're you know if you're a EU factory and you're competing with a, a, a factory in another country that doesn't have a carbon price, you're potentially at a competitive disadvantage. So the EU sort of floated the idea of saying, okay, well, we will slap a tariff on imports from countries that don't have a credible carbon price. Um, and there's been discussions in the UK about that as well. Now, obviously, the free marketeers like Liz Truss have kind of dismissed that and not been particularly in favour. And others have actually said, you know what, this is a fair in terms of competitiveness issues but also it's a fantastic lever for being able to say to other countries um if you want to trade with us you better sort out your climate policy and of course that's ultimately in support of the paris agreement and the cop 26 talks as well um and and there's been some progress on this so one of the things that's happened at cop 26 already is the eu and the us have sort of preliminary kind of agreed a bit of a trade deal around trying to encourage lower carbon uh, steel, I think, as, as, as I haven't looked at the details, but I think that's, again, that's one of the sort of small stories that's happened on the sidelines of COP. Um, and I think over the next few years, we are going to see a lot more discussion in trade policy about can you impose these environmental uh, conditions 
on other countries that you're that you're trading with that are importing to you. And that's going to become a big topic because obviously one of the areas the UK is looking to trade with is, is Brazil. They're looking at a trade deal there. Um, obviously deforestation, a massive issue there. They're looking at a trade deal with the US. Um, can you try and sort of put within those trade deals this idea that if you want to trade with us, then we want to see credible national determined contributions within the, the Paris Agreement? Um, the signs are, however, that whilst the government's very big on net zero at home, when it gets these trade deals, it doesn't seem to want to use that leverage that it has. And the Australia trade deal was really disappointing on that front, because while it referenced the Paris Agreement, it did so in very weak terms. And uh, and there were reports that slightly stronger terms were kind of torn out by the Australian diplomats and the UK just didn't push back. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we haven't used that leverage to try and encourage Australia to come forward with, with, with more ambitious plans. And the worry is that we'll continue not to do so. Really unsurprising that the blame will go on somewhere else rather than. Well, I, I never yeah. saw them do that. Um, <laughs> I mean, in these sort of situations where we've got, for example, the UK government not doing what at all what we'd hope, or you know, where 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 you know, COP twenty sixteen with world leaders or countries that perhaps aren't doing, is is it business then that that's that we're looking at to change is, is you know, because if if consumers uh, uh, want the planet to be saved and consumers are looking for for companies that are say running net zero, is that is that where the pressure needs to come now? Is a business is going to be kind of uh, more important uh, when it comes to going green? Do you think? I mean, they're absolutely core to it. I mean, I run, I run a website called Business Green, so I would say that. And you know, there's again, there's people who would argue that capitalism is at the root of this entire problem, and we should burn everything to the ground as quickly as possible and and start over with a a more kind of eco-socialist model. And you know, I have a lot of sympathy for for that thinking in, in many ways, but equally given where we are now you know there is no way of tra- making this transition to net zero without harnessing the power of the private sector it- its capital and its entrepreneurialism and its ingenuity and you know to-, to to rolling out the low carbon infrastructure that we need to see and one of the big you know quiet revolutions of the last few years has been the world's biggest and most successful companies almost all increasingly accept that um even the oil majors nominally accept it. Um, you can argue about how genuine they are, but they, you know, they many of them now have net zero targets as well and are branching out into clean technologies, not doing it fast enough, but they are doing it. Um, <clears throat> and you're seeing all these corporates coming forward with these plans and looking to increase the development of, of, of various clean technologies. Um, I mean, there's two things there. The sort of cynical view is, can they you know are they serious about doing it fast enough are they when it when push comes to shove are they happy to sell less to help reduce emissions and that's a big challenge is that is that can a sort of consumption-based economy really deliver decarbonization quickly enough uh you know and there's people who think it can that there's ways you know we can produce products and services that have such a low impact that we can make that work and that that'll be the big test over the coming decade uh, but the other thing is it does come back to governments because if you want to do this fast enough, you do need to create the kind of policy framework and the investment framework that allows these companies to realize their good intentions and and make these transformations. Because if you have a sort of regulatory framework where another company can get away with just polluting and not paying for the cost of that pollution and producing stuff to a lower standard and being able to undercut you in the market, then the business that's gone and invested in renewables and electric vehicles and the like 
could be undercut um, and and outcompeted by a company that's allowed to continue to pollute unabated. Uh, and that's the big worry is that, yeah, and one of the interesting things that we've seen at COP26 again already is we've seen CEOs from some of the world's top businesses write an open letter to world leaders saying, we want regulation. We want better policies. We want you to be more ambitious in decarbonisation. And if you do that, then we can follow and catalyse things. But if you don't, it becomes really difficult for these companies. Um, it's easier than it was because renewables and electric vehicles and the like are now so cost competitive that they ultimately do become the better option. But when you start to get into these heavy industries and you get into the industries that are difficult to decarbonise, like aviation and shipping, and you know all the, the steel and cement and other things that we use, without governments providing a bit of a leg up or, or a clear sort of set of rules, it's hard to see how those industries can transform fast enough. And and that's that's the but that's but you know that's the both the optimism and the big fear here. Cool. Thank you tons for, for having the time to chat, James. I know it's an incredibly busy week for you, and I know you're going to be off to uh, COP26 next week. Um, so listeners should be checking your, your Twitter feed anyway. Um, but the I wanted to ask the question that I ask all the guests on the show, which is, apart from yourself and Business Green, what are the other people, sites, publications that you go to for uh, reporting on climate change politics um, or, or opinion? Who, who are the your favourite ones to uh Oh, there's so many. It's, and it's so much better than it was. I mean, when I started out, it was just such a niche area that no one paid any attention to. Um, <laughs> and, and and it really has become, you know, there's so much fantastic journalism going on in this space. I mean, the team at the, the FT are absolutely great on this stuff. Um, the team at The Guardian are, are brilliant on all things climate change and always have been. Um, <clears throat> the Carbon Brief is kind of a specialist title in this space who are absolutely excellent and provide loads of really detailed data on, on, on the transition. Uh, climate Home News. Um, cover the this kind of UN negotiations in in huge depth and, a, and again a, a fantastic resource um, yeah there's 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 so many yeah great great journalists to pick from um, and I mean David Wallace Wells in in the US as well who wrote The Uninhabitable Earth who's just doing fantastic work sort of really detailing quite how big and challenging this transition is um, yeah there's lots to choose from those are just a few and Business Green obviously and my colleagues there very, very grateful to James for having time amidst his relentless COP26 reporting to have a chat with me. Um, you can find James on Twitter at James underscore BG. Uh, Business Green's site is businessgreen.com or they're on Twitter and Facebook at Business Green too. James and Business Green also run the Net Zero Festival. Uh, this year's happened at the end of September, so you've missed it, but you can still watch some of the content online at netzerofestival.com. Currently, uh, I'm still looking for people to interview on uh, world corruption in politics and lobbying. That would be handy right now. Afghanistan and um, a whole heap of things I've missed or not yet covered on this show. Have you got ideas about guests, that is? Don't tell me your inventions for an app that tells you how far away you are from a melon at all times. I don't want that. So guest suggestions only. No cantaloupe station pitches or whatever you're going to call it. To uh, send those to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. If you cling on to this show like an audio-loving barnacle, then why not suggest it to others who may wish to um, sort of hang on to its side and um, filter food particles. I'm not sure. I haven't quite worked this analogy out. Look, just tell other people who might like it to listen. Like the Cyropedia arthropods, they are the resonation-hungry versions of... This is overly complicated. Which, look, I, I wouldn't even tell them that they're Cyropedia arthropod resonation-hungry versions of... That isn't very flattering, is it? Nor is calling you barnacles. Look, what I'm trying to say is just please spread the word. Like a word-spreading limpet. 
Yeah. Now, if you can, uh, spread the word, donate to the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, and even give the show a review, otherwise you're just shellfish. Thanks a bunch of Banana Republics to Acast, my brother Last Skeptic, go listen to his new album, and to Cat Day 2. This will be back next week when it's decided MP standards will be regulated by a standard bearer who'll sit at the side of the Commons, but the plan is scrapped when Johnson gives the job to Owen Patterson in return for £3,000 and a sticky bun, and he doesn't turn up as he's too busy with his second job of waving a flag at some racing. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Sheer Coincidence. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. 